Eat your fish. 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 In a world filled with many plays meant to be read, two podcast hosts dive into unscripted conversations each week, <laughs> and it is on no script, oh. an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen, and I'm sorry about that, <laughs> folks. I, I should have lassoed it earlier. As soon as it started, I should have jumped in. And tried to just put us back right on just the right on the track. Rewind, what an incongruous I, start to this episode. <laughs> but I got your attention. Thank you all for tuning in. We are talking about a great play this week, full of unexpected surprises. Maybe not voiceover level, but still, we are talking about August Osage County this week. That is right. This play was really, really popular. Uh, a few years back when it really kind of rose and exploded in the theatrical scene, but it is still just a heck of a play. As I was reading it, preparing for this podcast, I was remembering how good it was when I read it the first couple of times as it was rising into the prominence that it holds now. August Osage County by Tracy Letts, incredible play, really excited for the conversation. And it's just, you know, there's a movie out, of course, we'll talk about all this when we go through the context here in just a minute, but uh, the movie has, of course, these just iconic performance by Meryl Streep, which is very hard to leave behind when you're reading the play, imagining yeah. her incredible performance. Yeah, definitely. And and I mean, just a star-studded cast. We'll get there in a minute. But so often, though, this is, this is again, we, we end up talking about a lot of proving grounds for actors. Uh, this play is a proving ground for many female actors. So, yeah, super excited to get into character and all that good stuff. But before we do, we want to ask everybody who's a part of the NoScript community, please go on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Again, patreon.com slash podcast. If you get there, you can become a patron of the show, support the work that we're doing in bringing a weekly conversation about plays to your listening ears. You can uh, join at different levels. The lowest tier is $1 a month one dollar a month twelve dollars a year i say it i say it again i know so many of you that if i just texted you and was like hey can you give me twelve dollars you would without even questioning it you might send one (laughs) question mark and the money as a text response because that that technological ability exists now so hey if you want to send me twelve dollars I will submit it to the Patreon for you. <laughs> so go ahead and do it that way if you want. But for the rest of you, patreon.com slash podcast. Support the show. Support the work that we're doing. We love to do it, but it's not free, and we need your help. So please head on over, patreon.com slash podcast. Have I said the URL enough times this episode? <laughs> I think so. it, might, it might stick. It we just might. might. We might have gotten it this time. <laughs> well, we will see you all over there on patreon.com slash no script podcast. One more time for good measure. So jumping into the context for this play, we uh, uh, this play was produced at the Steppenwolf Theater, which we are both big fans of. And it was also uh, the recipient of the 2008 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. So we're still in our current of Pulitzer Prize winning plays that we uh, will continue talking about. Uh, but like I said, first production, Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, June 28 of 2007 and then it premiered in on broadway at the imperial theater on december 4th um there are a couple noteworthy names in that original production uh dennis letts amy morton who we've talked about before um and 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 that that play or those productions ran for a year i believe a piece kind of uh both both uh shows ran for roughly that time and then, of course, there is the uh, aforementioned film that we have uh, talked about. Uh, this film was, as we said, quite star-studded. Uh, you had Meryl Streep playing uh, the the main mom of the group. Uh, Julia Roberts was in it. Benedict Cumberbatch. A whole bunch of good people were in this movie. Uh, Ewan McGregor was in this movie. Abigail Breslin was in this movie. Um, so many, so many people. And uh, so, like, like we said before, lots of uh, heavy 
heavyweight actors, actresses all have played these characters and and have grappled with them. So so it is it is a well known and well loved production and script. That's right. Yes, as you can imagine from the title, the play is set in August in Osage County, which is a little county in Oklahoma. The play describes the the little farmhouse on which in which the rest of the story takes place as being a little bit northwest of Tulsa. I live fairly close to Tulsa now, and I haven't read the play since we moved to this area of the country. So as I was kind of getting into it again, I was like, that's like only a couple hours from here. And that's the setting of August Osage County, which was kind of fun. <laughs> the Weston family occupies the core group of characters. And this is a multi-generational family. The oldest living members of the family being uh, in, you know, into their elderly life quite a bit. They have adult children who have children now. And so the main, the matriarch of the family, her name is Violet, Violet Weston. And Beverly Weston is her husband, who would be the patriarch of the family if he were still around. The core plot of the play is that Beverly Weston has disappeared. He has vanished, and so Violet has called together the troops, the family, to arrive and figure out what to do to help her through this time of Bev being missing. She's called together her three daughters, Barbara Fordham, uh, which would be a name that she took when she was married, I would guess, um, because she would have been Barbara Weston originally, but now she's Barbara Fordham. She brings her husband, Bill, and daughter, Jean, Ivy Weston is another of the three daughters. Um, and then Karen Weston is the third of the three daughters. Karen brings along her fiance, Steve. Then there's a, a couple other characters, Maddie Fay and Charlie Aiken. They are Violet's sister, Maddie Fay, and then Maddie Fay's husband, Charlie. And then there's a slew of other ones too that Maddie Fay and Charlie have a son named Little Charles, there's a housekeeper named Joanna. And there is a sheriff that arrive as well. So, as I said, all of this cast of characters arrives because Bev Weston has disappeared. And what happens over the course of the play is they discover what happened to Bev. And then it becomes just kind of an interpersonal, uh, a story based on interpersonal conflict. What's revealed about these people in the wake of this tragedy? What secrets are they bringing to this gathering of family members? Some of the main uh, plot lines, Ivy is in a relationship with her cousin, little Charlie. Um, Steve, again, who is the fiance of one of the Weston girls, uh, Karen, is uh, kind of a creepy dude. That's one of the major plots. Of course, if you've seen the movie or know anything about it, you know that the, the, the matriarch, Violet Weston, the character played by Meryl Streep, she is an addict. She's a drug addict to various kinds of pills. That occupies a large portion of the play as well, among a whole slew of other things. Barbara and Bill are separated because Bill's been cheating on her. Um, I don't know. There's uh, Char Charlie and Maddie Faye have some stuff going on because Maddie Faye really does not seem to like their son, little Charles, at all. So there's a whole slew of family conflict that occupies really the, really the whole of what goes on inside this house in Oklahoma. Yeah, and the, there's there's such a good rate of information that we get because we don't meet all of these people right away. Uh, we we meet it, there's actually like a prologue scene in which Beverly is hiring Jana. Jana is the the household maid that uh, is a brand new hire. Um, they haven't ever had a maid before, and uh, Beverly, uh, Violet's husband, is is interviewing her to hire. And so we start the play with these three characters, Beverly, Violet, and Jana, and then the rest of the play is very unexpected from that point. All of a sudden, Beverly is no longer around. Well, yeah, it's a very interesting decision. I'm glad you brought it up, and I'm glad you brought it up first, because it's one of the things that I really wanted to talk about. What, why would you include the prologue scene? Why include Beverly as a character in the play at all? There are so many 
plays which revolve around a missing or recently deceased person or that have this sort of offstage character that carries a lot of weight. You know, you think of a play like The Glass Menagerie, the picture of the father that occupies so much of the character's attention. That's the kind of role that Bev plays across this play in all but the first scene. That is the only scene that he's in, and it's not even really a scene of any of the acts. It's called a prologue. Prologues are kind of odd in theater. It's hard to figure out exactly what's meant by a prologue scene. Is it related to the plot? Is it a direct contribution to the plot? Is it just something we're supposed to know and find interesting? Why have Bev appear on stage? What is that about? It is an interesting choice, right? Like uh, you're you're absolutely spot on that we are used to the uh, the the missing person trope in theater. Um, that you know everyone is trying to grapple with the missing person. You're finding out about the missing person through subjective views around everyone. You end up with a pretty holistic view of that person because six different people have given an account of that person. And uh, by the by the end of the play, either they're there or they're not, and that's 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 the play. So a it's kind of it's kind of a cool against that gimmick. So there, there is that to be said is we actually see the person around which everyone is talking for the rest of the play. But I think the actual, for me at least, the actual reason that that play uh, or the service that, that that scene gave me at the start of the play was it introduced me to Jana, um, who is could just get away with being... Um, uh, just the maid of the house were it not for this first scene. I think she becomes a sort of a witness to the family in this first scene because she knows Beverly. They have a bit of a connection. Beverly gives her a book of T.S. Eliot for her to read and kind of connects her to his book collection and in a way kind of connects her to him in that first scene. And so she now has the perspective as everyone is coming to the the funeral and and beginning to bash heads around she now has a more full perspective as this kind of watcher character of all of the family I think you're definitely right that the 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 prologue scene serves at least partially as an introduction to this housekeeper character who is going to, I think you're right, is going to be prevented from becoming a background character by being in the very first scene and the very last scene. There's some real structural beauty to her place in this play as she begins the play by basically having Bev tell her her role in this house and all the things that she's to take care of and all the weak and problems that they have as a as a married couple and keeping things up as a drug addict and an alcoholic and keeping things up and then of course the play ends with Violet collapsed on Jana's lap in her attic bedroom as, as she, I guess you know Jana is now trying to keep what's left of the house together or is comforting Violet somehow. So there's some beauty in the beginning and ending images in contrast to each other when you include Bev in the play. And there's some cool, I don't know about cool, there's some interesting, I won't I won't put a positive spin on it, there's some interesting, uh, basically, what amount to Easter eggs once you know what's going to happen with Bev's character when you go back and look at that prologue scene, for example, he starts to play by quoting T.S. Eliot, but then basically says, well, T.S. Eliot made it through all the tragedies that he suffered still alive. I'm more interested in poets like John Berryman. And he quotes John Berryman, and this is what Bev says, quoting Berryman. The world is gradually becoming a place where I do not care to be anymore. And Bev talks about how he relates more to poets who have this dark, broken, suicidal of outlook on life. And then of course we learn in the play that that's probably what happened to Bev. Yeah. He's he, he, there's, there's all sorts of that, that like the little Easter eggs is a great way to put it. The little things that you, that that prologue scene kind of sets up, gets you ready for. You are also introduced to Violet in a, in a, uh, in a moment when she is not, uh, performing or wielding power or trying to attain power or just just uh interact with her daughters primarily um because the rest of the play is that and she is she has some sort of facade up most of the rest of the play 
Yeah, the character of Violet, as you would know, if you, you know, even if you watch a trailer for something that, like the movie August Osage County, she wields power, like you say, in such an extreme way, in, in almost a cruel way. In fact, I think the cruelty, whether or not Violet is truly cruel or, you know, as a result of such a hard life has become who she is, where her cruelty comes from is one of the questions of the play. And so... You could simply start the play where, you know, after the prologue scene where it starts, which is Violet and Ivy, they're, they're the first two that have a discussion that includes Violet, and, and Violet's not kind to Ivy in that discussion. Her cruelty begins there. So if you had started the play that way, that's one particular view of the way that Violet wields power. But I like that you, what you said, that we see Violet in a, in a really fragile, vulnerable state where she has no power and does not seem to be trying to wield or gain it, at least with her daughters at all. She does kind of throw some odd maybe drug-induced accusations at Bev that he's like, oh, you're hiring a woman, I see. Right, um, right. So there's there's some tension that's created, but she certainly doesn't have the power that she has later in the play. Yeah, <laughs> the, I mean, that kind of throwing of accusations and shade and remarks throughout is is just like a hallmark of this play. Everyone throughout the play uses that tactic. And it's all history. It's all backstory. And we're all like slowly peeling off the onion and finding its rotten center at the, at the middle of it. And, and, and it's and while I think you're I think you're right, it is pretty, pretty lax in the beginning. It still cues you up for, oh, this this is what these folks are going to be doing for a lot of play. And that's what happens is as soon as the family starts getting together, pretty much once the initial hellos happen it's 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 off to the races as it's far open as, uh, season i mean the, the cruelty yeah. <laughs> abounds amidst everybody this is a quote from late in the play this is charlie who is there's so many characters with so many relationships but charlie is maddie Fay's husband and maddie Fay is violet's sister and we know th just from our encounters with all these characters that maddie Fay and charlie were like a a couple friend to Violet and Bev. They, they live in, at least, they live about an hour and a half away, we think. But they, they're around a little bit. Um, Maddie Faye does comment that they haven't been to the house in a while. But Charlie and Bev apparently go fishing a lot. So there's some closeness of their relationship. But this is late in the play. Maddie Faye has gone after Char little Charlie a lot. And finally, older Charlie, Maddie, the husband, has kind of had enough of it. He's, he's going after Maddie Faye a little bit. And he says, I don't understand this meanness. I look at you and your sister and the way you talk to people, and I don't understand it. I just can't understand why folks can't be respectful of one another, and I don't think there's any excuse for it. I mean, when that moment comes up, for me, it's always a relief. It's like, finally, <laughs> somebody has said it. What the heck is going on? Why are these people so mean to each other? Yeah, it's this uh, there's there's the it's kind of dealing with the question of family. A lot of this play has as has question marks around family and why family stays together and and what value it is for family to stay together. And and the value is stretched to the thinnest in this play. And many characters don't make it out. <laughs> <laughs> with with any sort of value attached to family. But that tension is there through much of the play, even past that moment that Jacob just read. There is this tension of like, you know, dang it, we're family. And so somehow we're going to all work this out together, even if it has to be some sort of <laughs> hierarchical, matriarchal dictatorship. <laughs> We're going to figure this out. I think that that's a really astute observation, Jackson, that the play asks, asks this question. Is it valuable for family to stay together no matter what? Is the, is the, is the blood relationships, the familiar relationships that we have, are they, do they have value when they cease to have value? Right. And that seems like a dumb question. But the play throws, it seems like it throws everything possible 
at every kind of family relationship to see what sticks. I mean, think through the different kinds of crises that occur. Uh, even just to start, Barbara and Bill, right? We I mentioned this. They're they're living separated because Bill has been cheating on Barbara with one of his students. He's a college professor. But due to the events of the play, they're forced to pretend like they're together at this house, pretend to be married, share the same bed, and to top it all off, Bill is trying to provide some sort of husbandly support of right. Barbara and what's going on. So where's the value in a marriage if there isn't any marriage anymore? Yeah. All while parenting a child who a, is... A, a problematic a parenting problematic of a child in a child. lot of ways. <laughs> yep. Yep. Who is also there as 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 a part of the events. And that ties into another uh, uh, sister issue, which is Karen and Steve throughout the play are there. They are uh, affianced and they show up and Steve almost immediately... Who is who is in his you know forties fifties at, at least forties um, starts hitting on Jean, a fourteen year old child, um, over smoking weed together. So that and all is boiling. Later and in the play, the play. They, the lights go off and that we hear some noises and the lights come back on and the stage directions are like their clothes are disheveled and you know they they were in the process of hooking up and they get caught. And Karen rushes to Steve's defense and says, I'm, we're still getting married. We're leaving. Don't talk to me about it. You're not so perfect. Gene was a little bit at fault, at least a little. I, I'm still getting married. I'm still doing this. Goodbye. And so is the question, what's the value of a, of a loving, trust-filled relationship like an engagement headed towards a marriage if there's no trust, if there's right. no accountability for actions? Well, and that's that uh, that series of lines from Ivy kind of sums up a lot or I'm sorry, that scene of lines from Karen sums up quite a bit of, of <laughs> why these people do stay together, because that she keeps saying none of us are perfect. If you think that you can ac accuse us of something, then. I'll bring up all of your problems. <laughs> I'm not perfect. He's not perfect. We're still getting married. Bye. Um, <laughs> and the opposite is Ivy, who kind of resides in this realm of we're all just one of her lines is something to the effect of we're all just a bunch of cells that got born in the same proximity. And now we're trying to artificially construct this social uh, construct of family around our being these just weird people that are trying that are just existing on their own plane of existence while while trying to be in the same place. Yeah, Ivy certainly represents that particular view of family as not being that valuable as saying it's just happenstance that we happen to be related, but we don't have any special obligations to each other. I also find what, to just to return to the Karen Steve thing really briefly, I find it so interesting that she immediately leaps to his defense in, in such a strong and powerful way in a situation in which he's clearly in the wrong. And the, the, what's interesting to me about it is in the first scene that we meet Karen, she and Barbara are having a discussion. And the discussion is basically Karen saying, I'm with this guy now and I'm really happy because I've been dating all these terrible people. And she says this, this is the lesson she supposedly learned from all these bad relationships. She's talking about one of the specific bad relationships where this guy did all this terrible stuff. She says, here's a guy I loved so intensely and all the things he did wrong were just opportunities for me to make things right. So if he cheated on me or called me a, a C word, I think to myself, no, you love him. You love him forever. And here's an opportunity to make adjustments in the way you view the world. And I can't say the precise moment when I looked in the mirror and said, okay, moron, and walked out. Right? So she says that this lesson she learned from all these bad relationships was that she didn't need to make excuses for the bad behaviors of her partners and that she deserves better and that now she's with this great guy. But then it happens. <laughs> and what does she do? She didn't learn a lesson at all. That monologue is just like a, a perfect little microcosm of, oh, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> like, because that that monologue is this, is this great pattern of like I was with this guy. It's kind of like a a self empowerment monologue. She gets like three quarters of the way through it, and then she starts describing this new guy that she's with, 
and that, you know, all the warning signs begin going off and, and we got engaged right away and he's taking me to my favorite place in the world. And, and just already, at least my lights were going off of like, oh, 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 no, that you didn't learn, did you? <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe. We'll see what happens. We'll but, see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but dang it. <laughs> uh-huh. And of so, course, the, you know, the matriarch and patriarch, Violet and Bev, their relationship, we only get it through discussion, really, because other than that short prologue scene, Bev is not in the play. But through the discussions of their relationship, you learn that the affection has somewhat worn off. The The regular life routines that make up what, what a lot of people would consider to be a long-time marriage, the day-to-day taking care of the house, raising and letting go of children, uh, paying the bills, learning to live together. You know, one of the functions of the prologue scene is Bev basically tells this person that he's hiring, we don't do any of that. I've got my alcohol, she's got her pills, and we don't really live any kind of a normal life. One of the iconic, just crazy memorable set features is that in this house, they have pulled all the shades and then taped around the edges of the shades so that no light can get in. This house is enclosed in darkness. There is no day and night. And Bev tells this person that he's hiring, he says, we don't have a routine here. There, we don't know what goes on in the outside world. We don't care. You're not going to be able to live a regular life. That doesn't exist in here. There's no day or night. And, and then later on, some of the characters are commenting about the shades, and they say basically the same thing. I think the function is that you can't tell what light is on outside. And so the, what, the, you know, the question of value, again, what's the value in a long-time marriage if there is no day-to-day life together? Or if that day-to-day life together is so you know, so painful, so lost in uh, chemicals that there's almost no human connection, no human routine. What's the value of that marriage anymore? And that's the primary example for most of these people as this kind of soured relationship of their parents that, you know, whatever performance they put on, it is clear that everyone knows the undercurrents of everyone, whether or not they choose to acknowledge it at the time, they will bring it up as ammunition in a fight. Um, and so, so that is the, you know, the kind of resting pool that these people are swimming in when they come home. And I think that's another kind of facet of this play is children coming home and family coming home after, again, the social need for children being home has left a family. What is it like for adult children to come home with all of their baggage? And what's it like for parents to receive them when they come home? What, How heavy-handed is a parent when you come home? And what politics begin to be involved as a result of that? On the back of my script is a, you know, oftentimes they'll include snippets of reviews, positive reviews from different newspapers. So the New York Daily News was talking about this, and this is just a quote of the quote. August Osage County may make you think twice about going home for the holidays. And I I mean, obviously I get what they're trying to say, right? Some of the commentary of the play is like you said, it's about going home and how relationships are different as you're an adult and you have your own life, your own problems, your own secrets, walking into the problems and secrets and lives of your family. But I also think that that quote may have missed the point a little. It's a really simple view of the play. Yeah, I'm not really sure this is a play about what it's like just to go home for the holidays. This is about a group of people forced together by the most extreme of family circumstances, put under the most extreme pressure. These are people that don't come together for the holidays anymore. Most of these people have not been to this house in Oklahoma in years. And in fact, that comes up again and again. It comes up in direct accusations. You haven't been around in years. And then it comes up in passing conversation. Oh, we got rid of that fort that you remember years ago. They don't meet together for the holidays. That part of family life, the coming together for celebration and joy and for the joy of being together, this family is without that. So what happens when that kind of family, lacking all the joy of coming together, is forced to come together? Is there any value to these relationships anymore? 
Right, that have just been kind of percolating on a back burner for for sometimes years. Like Barbara, for instance, uh, says that she has been a very dutiful daughter in that she calls and writes and sends presents. But uh, if you believe uh, Violet's accusation, she hasn't been home in years. And Ivy's kind of corroboration that Ivy has been left alone as the regional caretaker. She teaches at uh, Tulsa University. Um, I think she's a librarian. A librarian, thank you, at, at Tulsa University. And uh, and so she is the regionally closest daughter and thus is pretty involved still, at least comparatively to the other sisters. Um, but but yeah, it's it's you know, Barbara crashes in and and there's this and and like shows up as kind of she's almost as we haven't talked about Barbara much at all yet. Let's let's lay into her a little bit. We've talked about uh Karen and Ivy is kind of two different sides, a little bit of of the coin of value around maintaining. Right, and, and the just to refresh facade. that as we as we parse out where Barbara's going to land here, Ivy, as we've said, exists in this world where she doesn't because of the abandonment and the fact that she's had to take care of her parents and watching their marriage fall apart because of all of that and more. Ivy exists in this world of like we don't really have familial obligation; it's just happenstance that we are together. Interestingly, that particular person with that particular worldview is the only one who seems to have any sense of familial <laughs> obligation in taking care yeah. of their parents. But okay, sure. And Karen, because of this recent happiness that she's found, quote unquote, with Steve, she's decided she wants to grow her family relationships more now. She wants to become more close to her parents and her sisters. So she exists on that kind of other, I want our family relationships to grow and develop as we become closer as sisters. Barbara. Barbara, right? A little bit of an enigma of a character. A lot of uh, of clout, though, within the family. And you're not really sure why initially. Um, you just know that the, like, the second scene or maybe the third scene of the play that Barbara is coming. And everyone is worked up or looking forward or worried about Barbara coming. And you're not really sure why for a long time. And then it begins to come out that various people think Barbara is the favorite daughter of various people. Uh, both b- Accusations are thrown that both uh, Beverly and Violet liked Barbara best or were broken up the most when Barbara left for Colorado. Um, and, and so, but, but still like, I'm I'm honestly a little bit confused and I'd love to hear your thoughts about like where does Barbara's power come from? She almost has the feeling of an older sister, but I'm not 100% sure that it's ever named that she is the older sister. It's it's this kind of uh kind of a weird dynamic within within the play that some difference is paid to Barbara when she shows up. Yeah, the the order of the sisters is not a, an especially discussed part of their relationships, though Barbara is the oldest of the sisters. And she's the leader. I mean, she's the one that takes action. And that, I think, is a lot of where her power actually comes from. In a lot of these family scenes, things come up and someone's got to make a decision, and Barbara's the one that makes a decision, often hasty, ill-thought-out decisions. Some of it also comes from the fact that Violet is willing to give up some power to Barbara. You know, as in the scene that you described, Ivy and Violet, the very beginning of the play, are talking about all this stuff that's happened. Beverly's disappeared. Violet's in disarray. And what does she say? She says, I need Barbara. I need Barbara to come. We need Barbara here. Which, even in that early moment of the play, (laughs) you kind of get, oh, that's a slap in the face to Ivy. Even so early, you already understand what Ivy's life must be like. She's there. She's been taking care of everybody. But when the rubber hits the road, when tragedy strikes, Violet says, I need Barbara. Mm hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And 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 it and it it kind of gets worse as it goes on. But again, there's this weird dynamic of these sisters are actually kind of good for most of the play (laughs) like for a good chunk of the play they have an okay relationship as much as a highly confrontational family can have um eventually towards the end of the play the relationships fall apart but i I, I, and there's there's a scene fairly early on in the play it is well about the middle of the play after the infamous dinner scene that i can't wait for us to talk about um 
there's the scene where the three sisters are all sitting around the table together. And they, it's just them alone in another room, uh, maybe off stage, off on stage still, but out of focus. There's a card game going on, and the conversation is around these three sisters, and it's it's not all backstabbing. <laughs> there is some kind of mutual care going on between these sisters, and yet there is still the jockeying for power within the greater group. Right. There's this sense that they've all lived through this together you know and and at, at some level that is what the play proposes that some of the value of family in as much as families actually have this is the shared experience not that everybody doesn't have their own individual experience but all three of the sisters grew up with violet and bev know what that part of it has been like and where their experience begins to divulge, that's where some of the pain starts to occur, right? One of Ivy's accusations is, you don't know what it's been like the past couple years. You don't know what it's like to accrue all of this weight over and over, day after day to experience this. You don't know. But about their childhood, there is this sense of shared community. We all had to do this. In fact, one of my favorite moments is um, it's just after the infamous dinner scene. Barbara has wrestled Violet to the ground, taken her pills, and said, we're doing a pill raid. And then I love this. She says, <laughs> you, you two remember how to do that, right? Talking to the two sisters. You remember yeah. how to do this. We have to take our mom's pills. You remember? Everybody's been here before. Yeah, that I, I absolutely resonate with that line. And, and it just it evokes such a sense of history and kind of out of the blue. Like, like you're 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 used to the pace of this play, which prior to that moment is very snappy, very uh, Violet is in control of almost any situation. There are times when people get her on her heels, but eventually she'll slap them down again. And all of a sudden, not only does Barbara take over the scene uh, physically take over. She also like issues a battle command <laughs> to all six people who are around her. And then everyone does it. So if you ever had any doubt prior to <laughs> prior to that point of the play, that Barbara is kind of this, the secret runner of a lot of these people, it becomes very clear in that moment because of of that shared history of everyone that they all, on her cue, snap into motion around this stuff. And that's just one beat of violence in the play. The violence occurs <laughs> a couple other times. As we're talking about this, the other notable moment is after Gene uh, and Steve are caught together. Remember, Steve's the older guy and Gene is the teenage girl and they get caught kind of fooling around. And, and, and Bill and Barbara are talking to Gene about it, trying to figure out what happened, trying to understand what they should do about it now. And Gene basically comes out and really boldly accuses her dad of, you know, being a cheat with these teenage, with these college girls. Such and a good line. It's such a great, oh, it's a great moment. <laughs> and um, Barbara slaps Jean across the face, defending the husband who's cheating on her, which is an interesting moment. But also, and the character comments on this too, within the space of only a few hours, she's attacked her mother and wrestled her to the ground and slapped her daughter across the face. And mm -hmm. Barbara says, you know, it looks like I've failed as a daughter and as a mother. And, you know, <laughs> Bill's like, no, you haven't. And in the audience, or as a reader, you're kind of like, yeah, you have. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, this Barbara is a character for whom she, she sort of is the is the center of the knots of all these relationships, right? Um, lots of these threads run through her at some point. And so you watch her struggle and be unable to hold up the weight of all this thread piling at this center knot. And some of what the play asks, right, is what happens when you have to carry it all and you don't? Mm -hmm. You can't. That knot, I, I, I love those two moments of, 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 of physical violence in this play because I think it is probably the most earned physical violence I have 
possibly ever read in a play. That's a pretty audacious claim. But oftentimes, both in live production and in reading a play, physical violence is not earned. Um, a character will ramp up fast, either uh, by an actor choice or just the writing builds a little too fast to a scene of physical violence. And it's, and it's jarring and it's shocking. Oftentimes it can be executed well, executed well, but it's, it's, it's for me often the feeling I get is, yeah, okay. So you wanted some physical violence in there. These two moments of, of violence, I feel like are so earned and so built because of that knot. The first one happens at a dinner table that has just been completely ruled over by Violet, who is on a pill-induced frenzy at this point. She is uh, being very uh, blatant about the fact that she's addicted. She has the pills out in front of her. She's waving them around at people and saying, you can't take them from me. If you do, I'll kill you. And she's waving them in Barbara's face. And Barbara jumps up and starts this fight. That's the first one. Then the second one is this brilliant set of lines where uh, Jean is trying to de defend what has happened in here. She's saying we were just goofing around. It's fine. And her dad says, Bill says, she's 14 years old. He should know not to deal with a 14-year-old girl. And she says, oh, yeah, that's just a couple years younger than you like them. And then the next beat is she gets slapped by, by Barbara. And it's just this perfect, I think a perfectly lined, I mean, morality is not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about dramatic structure. It is a perfect movement. And of course, the, the moment of slapping Gene is made even better because it immediately follows another moment of violence. Yeah. And when <laughs> the they discover the, Steve, yeah. uh, it's the housekeeper that discovers Steve and Gene canoodling in the living room and she the housekeeper first of all smacks steve with the frying pan which is, which is great comic and yep. then uh everybody rushes in to see what's gone on and when it when it comes out barbara attacks steve and mm -hmm. be you know is attacking wildly scratching attacking him everybody gets pulled off everybody goes out all their separate ways and they have discussion and then barbara slaps gene so she has these two contrasting moments of violence within minutes of each other in one she's mama bear she right. goes to bat she you don't touch my daughter and she attacks this guy who's you know been abusing her daughter and then it turns around and slaps her daughter across the face within <laughs> a, a page and a half of each other and it, it just goes to show how wildly the character of barbara feels she has to turn to keep up in one scene she's the daughter who's supposed to be in charge the oldest daughter in the next scene her mother's screaming at them because they've had such an easy life and they don't get it in the next scene her husband is telling her that they're marriage is really going to be over and i'm sorry there's nothing we could do about it but at least we can you know try to pretend like we're doing it this scene in the next scene she's parenting a daughter who's you know was just in this relationship with this much older man in the scene after that she's this in the scene after that she's this this <laughs> character has to pivot like crazy and she mm -hmm. just can't keep up yeah and she's and and, and that is kind of what happens to Barbara by the last couple scenes uh, of the play prior to the last scene. She just basically stopped being able to keep up and everyone else leaves and she's kind of left there. Like it's this feeling of almost like she just didn't move fast enough or she got stuck. And, and then she's, she's the one left. Everyone else leaves and she's there all alone because uh, Bill, her husband, has taken Jean away. He says, you, you clearly are, can't do this right now and takes Jean away back to Colorado. Everyone else leaves. Karen leaves with Steve. Ivy leaves. And then uh, Maddie Faye, Charlie, and little Charles all leave. And, well, and, and 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 the Ivy is one of the last daughters left as well. And there's this great scene where the three of them, Violet, Barbara, and Ivy, are having, I think it's lunch together. And they're, yeah. they're eating fish. And, and Ivy wants to tell Violet uh, that she and little Charles, who she believes is her cousin, are going to run away to New York City. Barbara has been infused with the knowledge that actually, get this, amidst all the other twists in this play, <laughs> get this, Ivy and little Charles are actually brother and sister. 
sister, little Charles, was Beverly, Ivy's father's son, by Maddie Faye. So they definitely cannot run off to New York City. It's not just that they're cousins. It's that they're brother and sister. But Maddie Faye says, Barbara, you handle it. I'm out. So the moment comes where she's got to handle it. Ivy's going to tell Violet, I'm leaving with my, I think, first cousin, Barbara knows brother, to go run away to New York City. Barbara's got to stop this somehow. But after all the about face, after all the political maneuvering, after everything that has left her, what's her tactic, Jackson? What's the only thing she's left able to really do? Just like complete obfuscation. Like it starts it starts as just like trying to trying to start a fight about dinner and trying to get her mom to eat her fish. And then it's it she it just comes out with it's, it develops into lying. She's like of <laughs> uh Ivy starts to talk and Barbara says, Ivy's a lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> and Ivy's like, no. Or, or like every time Ivy tries to bring it up, uh, uh, Barbara just goes, eat your fish, 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 eat your fish. Yeah. Eat your fish. Or uh, she knows that um, Ivy hates it when people call little Charles, little Charles. They, she wants him to call him Charles. So she, uh, Ivy tries to start the sentence a couple of times. Charles and I, Charles and I. And every time Barbara goes, little Charles, little Charles, little Charles. Little Charles. I mean, it's childish. <laughs> it's a tactic that has no chance at working. Right. And it sounds a lot like the kind of crap Violet would pull and has pulled a couple of times throughout the show. In fact, one of Ivy's accusations as that dinner scene comes to a close is you and mom have become basically the same person at this yeah. point. And and it, I mean, it, I think that scene to me, almost more than any other, shows wh- what Barbara has been left with. After all of these relationships, all these stretchings, all the things she's tried to navigate and control, she's finally left with this crisis to deal with. What are you going to do? And what she does is just act like a child. Eat your fish. Eat your fish. Eat your fish. Eat your fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that scene, we, we find out this information in the middle of the, the rest of the bombshell of this evening of the, pre- the the previous evening that scene that we were just describing happens at least a day if not more later and uh and the end of this this funeral day that started with the dinner and has since devolved again into more more awfulness we find out this information that little charlie is actually ivy's half brother and they're in a relationship and maddie Faye does not want to tell them so that percolates for for two three scenes we're wondering what barbara's gonna do and it winds up not being Barbara who breaks it. It's again Violet who outplays everyone. And and at first and the and the way she delivers it, you're not even sure that she is, right? She just like Ivy says, Ivy has tried to start a sentence, little Charles and I, little Charles and I, little Charles and I are, little Charles and I, and eventually Violet says, Little Charles and Charlie and you are brother and sister. And and <laughs> Ivy, like, can't take it in at first. She tries again to keep starting her sentence, and Violet continues. No, I've known for a long time. Nothing gets by me. I've known that that uh, Beverly and Maddie Faye had this affair. None of them knew that I knew, but I knew. And and you just start to see, again, a checkmate has been pulled by Violet. And, and, <laughs> and then there's another layer beneath it, too. There's, like, this layer of she knew that... Ivy was going to leave. Like it's not it's not just that she knew there was a problem. She knew Ivy was going to leave and she didn't want Ivy to leave. So she gets she gets her to stay by revealing this information in possibly the most hurtful way possible. Right, yeah, at the final hour, Violet pulls the rug out from under Ivy. And we don't know what's going to happen with Ivy. We know what Violet thinks, uh, that she's not going to end up going to New York City. But we, we don't actually get to see that scene because we watch this moment, as you say, where Violet reveals this information in a way designed to get her, her, her chosen outcome out of her daughter. And then Violet misplays. And, and Violet's misstep here at the very end of the play is sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back. Ivy's left in a huff. She says, you know, I can't believe you. You're trying to take this from me. Uh, How dare you? We're going anyway. Goodbye. Barbara and Violet are left together. And it is revealed that Violet knew where Beverly was for several days. And she decided not to call him 
Um, and it's revealed by virtue of talking about the fact that Bev had this affair with Maddie Faye, and Violet basically says, well, I, if, I, if I had decided to call him at the motel, I might have told him that he didn't have to feel so upset about this affair that was eating into him that he had so long ago. Um, you know, I would have told him it was it was okay. Don't worry about it. You should just come home or, or whatever, something to that effect. The crucial point being, Violet reveals what Barbara learned a couple of scenes ago, which is that Bev spent a couple of days in a motel before going to commit suicide on the lake. And Violet reveals she knew where he was and didn't call him until it was too late, even though he left the suicide note and said where he was going. She had, potentially, the opportunity to save his life and didn't. And not only that, but there's a there's a bit of a complex undercurrent of they had put all this money away in a safety deposit box and and in, in a bank. And if, if any of if one of them were to die, their agreement was that the other one would get to it first, take it out of the bank and then report that they had died so that the money wouldn't go towards the will so that they were taking care wow. of each other. Yeah, we, we, you know, Violet says that was their Violet agreement. Violet says that, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm far from convinced that their, that agreement was ever made right. by anybody but Violet. But yeah, she says that was their agreement. Well, be that as it may, she she admits to that, which yeah. is pretty nefarious. Yep. And she admits that that was the reason why she waited till Monday. Or she, she admits, she says that that's the reason she waited till Monday was because because she had to wait over the weekend to get to the bank on Monday to see if he had killed himself, <laughs> right? To call the hotel to see if he had killed himself. So that, that, that is added to Barbara's growing, like just pressure, not throughout the end of this play. Right. And it causes Barbara to leave. It's the, it, it's what breaks her ability to stay and try to keep a lid on things, try to control the wild ends of this knot of their family as much as she possibly can. And when she learns this, that, you know, after all that she's done to take care of her poor widowed mother, her mother <laughs> had the chance potentially to reach out in love and save her husband and didn't, you know, chose the, monetary results of their marriage over the relational results of their marriage in that moment, Barbara takes off and leave. And of course, it would take a long and complex character analysis to describe all the things that leads Barbara to, to leave at that exact moment. Mm -hmm. But needless to say, it's a misplay by Violet in a way that, you know, she's even despite the pills that she's on, she's she's almost masterful in a sloppy I can't believe that just worked kind of way through the rest of the play. Yeah. But this moment, she really missteps, and it, it drives away first one daughter, then the other, leaving her with only Jonah, or, uh, Jonah the housekeeper. And, yeah, it's it, it feels like a miscalculation. Like, just like she, she like, threw, kind of puts this information out there, assuming it's going to do a thing, and then Barbara is just, like, so done. <laughs> and and just leaves and it's 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 heartbreaking still i think it's heartbreaking it at the end heartbreaking i mean it seems like every time a character leaves this house it's for a heartbreaking painful reason which leads me to ask you this question jackson almost every description of this play i've ever seen calls it a comedy a dramedy maybe or a black <laughs> comedy or a dark comedy what do you make of that right <laughs> I think it's absolutely a comedy. Um, it's just it's just so laced with family, and and I don't I don't really know how else to like. I, if I try to unpack that comment, I'm gonna stutter and fail a bunch because that is what <laughs> because that's what it is. It's this group of people who all have history and are all poking fun at each other and are all ripping rugs out from under each other the whole time. And you laugh, at least partially, because surely we're not all fooling ourselves to say that we haven't had some sort of interaction that is close to this in some family gathering. Some sphere of family maybe doesn't yell at each other, throw each other to the ground and punch each other and rip pills away, but it is family is fraught with these kind of relationships, history, and conversations around 
old grievances bottled up and then percolated on for a long time. And the the dialogue writing is hilarious. I mean, as you think through the beats of the plot and the character motivations and journeys, it's dark. I mean, the play is, there's not much light in the play at all, as evidenced by, of course, the, the image of the shades taped shut. You know, I mean, nice, nice there's, not much, there's not much light or hope in these families' lives, and it, the play does not end in a lightful or hopeful way. But a lot of what makes it a comedy is just the hilarious one-liners. The, it seems like so many of these characters are sharp and quick and quick with a retort and quick to say things that might not be funny in the context of the plot, but as an audience member are very funny. Like one of the hilariously funny lines in this scene between Ivy and Barbara and Violet that we described where Barbara is trying to prevent Ivy from talking about little Charles and she's trying to get her, her mom to eat her food. They just go back and forth, eat it, eat it, eat it. And then I'm, I'm going to swear here, so I apologize. At one point she just goes, eat the fish, bitch. And it's hilarious. It's dark and mean and comes from a terrible place in both characters. But man, is it funny. The rhythm of the dialogue that builds to this final one. Eat the fish, bitch. I mean, it's just the way that the, the rhythm of speech is built to this moment is so good. And it exists through the whole play. I think you're spot on with that. The the writing of this play is just so good, so electric, and so risky. So like, the so there's the the dinner scene that we're not gonna have too much time to talk about, but like to fully unwrap. But this dinner scene is audacious, right? Like it is the only other one that we have talked about has been All Wilderness's dinner scene, and I think this one blows All Wilderness's dinner scene out of the water. It is at like eight or nine people all around a dinner table, and there's like two or three pages of overlapped dialogue. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It is three plus pages of overlapped dialogue, and that is a challenge to an actor. It's a challenge to the writer to to overlay all this. It's all hilarious. If you pick up a piece of any of these conversations, you're going to love it. <laughs> And and then you'll need to watch it six times to be sure that you've picked up every piece of information that is happening, especially if, you, if you're watching it on stage rather than the film. It's all happening simultaneously and all trying to compete with focus, just like a real family dinner at a large table is. And of course, the insults, especially from Violet, are one of the great features of the play. I mean, she is just backhanded and salty and very, very funny. At one point, she says, um, they're talking about how uh, uh, Barbara's husband, you know, Bill, is having an affair with a younger woman. And this is at the dinner scene in front of everybody, by the way. Um, And uh, Violet says, oh, you see, uh, implication, he's with a younger woman. Odds are against you there, babe. Ivy says, mom believes younger women don't grow more attractive with age. Karen says, oh, I disagree. Violet says, I didn't say they don't grow more attractive. I said they get ugly. And it's not really a matter of opinion, Karen, dear. You've only just started to prove it yourself. (laughs) I mean, that is mean, but pretty darn funny. (laughs) Masterfully executed. I think that's going to pretty much wrap up our conversation around this play. This this play, as we've kind of, the the pace of our conversation feels like the our excitement level at the pace of this script. This script moves at just a breakneck speed. You're laughing, you're feeling awful, and then you're feeling kind of shocked by the end of it, all, all within the space of a couple pages. So I'm, 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 I'm hope that you get the chance to read this play or watch the movie. It's one of the really good adaptations to movie of a theater script that I've seen. That's right, yeah. One of the little reviews on the back of my script calls it densely plotted. And I think that that's a great description. There is so much plot packed into this. It is six men, seven women, and almost every single one has a substantive journey. 
I mean, in the sense that their lives are going to be changed in a substantive way moving on from that script. And that is a heck of a tall order for a playwright to try to come up with. At the end of one play, 13 people's lives are individually changed. It's not that they all experienced one thing. They all were on their journey and experienced different things that's going to change their journeys going forward. I mean, that is densely plotted. And we didn't talk about a lot of the tertiary characters <laughs> and what they yeah. go through. And we could, I mean, you just because of the amount of things, the breakneck pace, we could have spent three episodes talking through all of the individual brilliant journeys that these characters go on. There's so much here. Yeah, and there's like, at least three family units at play. You know, they're, they're all rotating around. We didn't talk about the sheriff at all. And the, and even the sheriff has a substantive journey that he goes on. So yeah, I, I absolutely agree, but there is plenty of more time in the sphere of things for us to continue the conversation with you. If you have read this play or watched the movie and want someone to grapple dramatically with about different themes and plots and characters, we're those people. So hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Username is at no script podcast we also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com find us on any of those uh internet sources and we'd love to keep talking about august osage county with you Absolutely. If you've liked this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, please help us out and share it. Tell your friends, tell your family, share on your chosen social media. That's a great way to help us out. If you like scripts, that's why you're here. You probably know people that like scripts. That's how friendships work. So (laughs) you can find our podcast on Podbean, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on Google Play. Easiest place to find it is probably every Monday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where a new link to a new episode is posted each and every week we'd love to see you there so until next time when we're talking about another play i am jackson nikolai i'm jacob man christensen thanks for joining us see ya bye